that we have access to you as only children have access to their father. That you invite us to come with all of our needs. That you are the great physician who takes care of our greatest issue, which is our sin that keeps us from you. So there's no longer an issue, but you also care about the details of our life, about our physical health, our relational health with each other. You care about stresses and struggles that come with being in need or uh, different circumstances and difficulties that come in our life. That you, in one sense, know our need before we say it, but you also invite us to come and present those to you. There's something that happens when we can have access to, to complain, to ask and request that you intervene, and to include you. Uh, and so, Lord, I pray that you would meet us this morning where we are. Meet us in our areas of stress. Meet us in our areas of doubt. Meet us in our areas of struggle and coldness. That you would soften the hard areas of our hearts through your word. That you would convince us and give us faith to believe that you are near, that you are with us in the midst of all circumstances. Give us the freedom to be honest and to complain, but also to trust when we can't see. To trust that you are at work and a plan that is for us and for your glory at the same time. Give us faith to believe that. Give us the courage to be in each other's lives in such a way that can help others see that, that can speak that truth when we can't speak it to ourselves. Use these means that we would not just go through the motions, but that it would drive us once again back to you. And so, Lord, we thank you for the Father and the God that you are, that I know I don't come to you as often as I should that even when I do, my heart is distracted with other things. But Lord, that does not hinder your welcome. That does not hinder your heart towards us. And so we thank you and praise you for that. I said, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. How do you think God feels about or views you this morning? How do you think God thinks about or views you this morning? When God looks down on you, what do you think wells up in his heart as he does? I mean, be honest with yourself. I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud, so be honest with yourself. I'm not looking for an answer that you would give in Sunday school. I'm not looking for an answer that you can pro provide a proof text for in the Bible. I want you to be honest deep down in your heart of hearts. When God looks at you, what do you think he feels? I mean, think about your week. What's your week been like? Where has your mind and your heart gone this week? Think about this morning. How's your day been already? Where has your heart been this morning? What's pulling at your heart and attention this morning? Think about those thoughts that may not get past the filter that you have, that you may not say, but you think, right? Because God knows those. Where have you spent most of your time and energy this week? Think about the times in your life where you've knowingly rebelled against God. Think about the times where you've premeditated and 
sinned intentionally against God. Think about the daily sins that you just write off because they become so common that we all have. That they hardly register anymore because you're so familiar with them. Now go deeper. Go to your most shameful moments. The most shameful moments. The moments that you spend a lot of time trying to hide from other people in your life. Maybe even the sins that you try to distract yourself from thinking about that you've committed. Include those as well. Now, how do you think God feels about you? How does a holy and perfect God see you in those moments? Is he mad? Is he disappointed? Is he frustrated that another one, again, this sin? Is he standing there with a ready condemning lecture for you? Another way to get out this question of how you think God sees you and views you or feels about you this morning is to ask yourself what you do, what do you do when you know you've blown it? What do you do in those moments when you know you've blown it right afterwards? What do you do? How do you respond? When you have sinned in that premeditative way, what do you do next after that? Because what you do in those moments reveals how you think God views you. Your answer to the question how God feels about you is driven by who you think God really is. It's driven by what you think God is really like. Who you think God is, how you think he views you, will naturally drive and determine how you view and treat other people as well. It will steer your joy or lack thereof. It will inform your activities, where you choose to spend time and what things you choose to say no to. It will determine how you treat your family and your friendships and the struggle that can come with that. In other words, the answer to this question informs the narrative of your entire life. How you answer the question, how does God view you, directs the narrative through which you live your life in the day-to-day reality. This morning, we're going to look at two parables, being a little aggressive. (laughs) We're going to look at two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin found in the first part of Luke chapter 15. There are actually three parables in this chapter, but we're just dealing with the first two this morning. But it's these two parables that reveal to us the heart of God. And in doing so, it's going to help us answer the questions of how does God view you this morning? What does God think of you when he looks down and he sees you? What does he feel about you? How is he towards you this morning? So if you can or are able, please stand. For the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country of the wilderness... And go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can be seated. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> pray that you would speak powerfully through your word, that your spirit would move and work in such a way that this message that you have for us, that these words would become real to us, that we would experience your love and your grace through the gospel. Only you can do this, but you promised to, and so we ask that you would. And so in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So both of these parables that we just read are telling actually the same message. They have the same themes, which is why I can use, take both of them in one sermon. Anytime we have something that's kind of repetitive in the Bible, it's because the author wants to drive home and emphasize a point to us. And often what that means is that point that he's wanting to drive home is both crucially important for us and also hard for us to believe. Crucially important, but also hard for us to believe. The bones of these parables starts with a shepherd with his sheep and a woman with her coins. The first parable, the shepherd cares deeply for each and every sheep he owns. And in the second parable, the woman cares deeply for each and every coin that she owns. And the tension in both of these parables comes in that the majority of the sheep or the majority of the coins are close by. But there's one. There's one of them that's lost. There's one of them that's strayed. And the tension and the question becomes, what will they do? What are they going to do when the majority is close by, but there's one that is lost? And in the parable of the lost sheep, there's 99, we're told, that are close to him. Therefore, if he goes to look for that one lost sheep, What that means is that he has to leave the 99 in the open country, to leave the 99 in the wilderness. In essence, looking for the one potentially puts the other 99 who stay close by in danger. The tension is that it would be so easy for the shepherd to kind of count the loss and just take the loss of the one sheep and keep the 99. It would be easy to leave the foolish sheep that has strayed away from the shepherd who cares for them and then tend to the 99. It's not just easy, it's a wise business move to stay with the 99 rather than expose them to the wilderness and go look for the one. But in verse 4, we are told this shepherd leaves. He leaves the 99 to go after the lost, go after the one that has strayed. And not just do a quick sweep of the area to kind of check the normal spots. What does it say? That he will look until he finds it. He goes all out. He holds nothing back. This is a mission that doesn't have an end except for him finding the sheep that has strayed. The sole purpose of this shepherd now is to find the lost sheep. And we already are starting to get insight into what the heart of the shepherd is like. 
And now to fully understand verse 5, we must know a little something about sheep. You might have heard this. You might know this already. It's a simple message. Sheep are dumb. (laughs) Sheep are stupid animals. They are stupid animals. Takes one to know one, right? They're really, really dumb. They consistently stray. They constantly stray and leave their shepherd who cares for them, who guides them, who protects them from predators. They mindlessly wander, looking for grass to eat wherever that grass is found. Their heads are down. They're not looking. They're not assessing what's around them or dangers or where they should go. And many times they do this to their demise. It's been known that Sheep often go and follow the grass and they end up on a cliff. And they end up on a cliff and they eat all the grass around and they end up not knowing how to get off the cliff. And if the shepherd doesn't come find them, they die. But it gets worse because even when they are found, the shepherd uh, finds them, but they don't willingly come back in relief of, oh, I didn't know what I was going to do on this cliff. Thank you for finding me. I was lost. Thank you. No, once they're found, they must be tackled, tied, and carried back to safety. And that's exactly the picture we get here in verse 5. And why, when the shepherd finds this sheep, he carries them. He must carry them on his shoulders all the way back. He can't simply whistle or call or guide the sheep back with a little help, but he has to carry them. The shepherd has to do all the work, not just to find the sheep, but to bring it back. And at the end of the verse 5 and the whole of verse 6, we learn something surprising about this shepherd, that when he finds his lost sheep, he does not yell at it. He does not beat him or even sigh in annoyance of it straying. All we are told that he does is what? Rejoice. Rejoice when he finds his sheep. He rejoices in such a way that it's not enough for him to keep the joy to himself. It's not enough for him to feel the joy just within himself. He has to share it. He invites his neighbors, he invites his friends and family to share in the joy of finding the sheep that strayed and that was lost. So he must share this joy with everyone he can. And then you get a similar event happening with the woman in the lost coin, right? She searches for this lost coin, it says again, until she finds it. This This mission doesn't end until she finds the coin. And when she does find it, she doesn't get mad at the fact that it was lost or the time and effort it took to find it or what she had to turn over in her house to find it. No, she too calls her friends together to rejoice that she has found this lost coin. So what in the world is Jesus trying to tell us in these parables? Well, explicitly tells us at the end of both of them, right? In verses 7 and verse 10. He's telling us that these parables are a picture of what happens in heaven when one sinner repents. In fact, he goes so far to say in verse 7 that there is more joy in heaven more joy over one sinner who repents than 99 who think they don't need repentance do you believe that
Do you believe that's what happens? How does that verse hit your heart this morning? That God's joy is tied to your repentance, not your goodness. How does that hit you? There are two main points the parables are showing us. The first point is that they drive home the extent of our need to be rescued. Our desperate need to be found. In case you have not gathered this already, we are not the shepherd in the parables. We are not the woman in the parables. Can you guess who we are? We are the sheep. We are the sheep that have strayed. We are the coin that was lost. We are the not-so-smart animal who constantly strays from the shepherd who loves, cares for, guides us, and protects the sheep. We are the coin that has no ability to aid in our being found. No ability to attract and show where we are and where we need to be rescued. We desperately need to be rescued and we can contribute nothing to that rescue. So because we are like sheep continually losing our way, what these parables are telling us is that we need a shepherd. We need a shepherd who will seek us until he finds us. We need a rescuer like the woman who sweeps the house tirelessly until she finds her coin. In other words, we don't just need a little help, right? We don't need a good teacher to explain to us the way we ought to live. We don't need an example to show us a way we ought to live, WWJD, right? That's probably aging me a bit, (laughs) I'm realizing. Um, We don't need a message that says, do your best and have God do the rest. None of that will help. Because Jesus is telling all of us this morning that we are sheep and can contribute nothing to our salvation, nothing to us being saved, nothing to us being found. Therefore, the shepherd must do everything to save us. And this is not a feel-good point, is it? (laughs) To be told what sheep are like, that they're dumb, that they stray, that coins are helpless and being able to help or aid in being found, and then to be told, that's what you're like? That's what I'm like? In fact, it may feel harsh or insulting to hear this, but it's kind of meant to. It's kind of meant to awaken us, to feel like an insult to us. It's meant to wake us up and bring us out of our sleepy, lukewarm, kind of cultural uh, Christianity that we can slip into so easily, including this guy, can slip into so easily. It's meant to awaken us to that reality that where we think and function that all we need, that we think that all we need is maybe some good advice, maybe some pointers, maybe some communication strategies to work things out, a a uh, 12-step program, or that we need to protect ourselves from the bad people out there, or maybe a personality test to help explain our issues away rather than deal with and own the reality that those are issues. While it may initially offend you a bit, 
I think deep down, you and I know there's truth in this. If we're really honest with ourselves, we know that there's truth in this bad news. You know that you are not what you are supposed to be. You are not living up to what you should live up to and how you should be living. Because of this, I think what we all kind of function in in our normal day-to-day life is that we have this kind of fear, this low-level buzz of fear in our life that we are kind of afraid deep down of being found out, that we aren't who we present ourselves to be, and we are afraid of being seen in one way or another for who we really are. The truth is that you and I don't even live up to our own standards, right? Our own standards of living, that we judge other people. I mean, forget God's standards and law for a second. You didn't think you'd hear a pastor say that, right? Forget his standards and law for a second. But at the end of your life, if you were to be judged by your own standards that you seek to live by, that you judge others by, you wouldn't stand a chance. So how much more? God's law and his standard on your life. I mean, isn't that why we spend so much time and effort curating our image before others? Yeah, online, but also in person. I mean, Sunday morning is one of the prime places we do this, right? Think about all the time and effort and energy you spend trying to control how people think about you or your reputation with others. And if you say, I don't care what people think about me, it would take me one second to show you how full of it that statement is. That statement's revealing how much you care about what people think about you. And yet, despite all that effort to hide, to cover, and to present ourselves a certain way, we still live with this level of fear of being exposed, of being seen for who we are. Why? Because we are unable to fix, to silence, to change, and cover up what's really wrong with us. You see, we are sheep. We are sheep who need to be found by a shepherd. And so the bad news is you can't do anything to aid in that. And that's how bad it is. The bad news is that we are helplessly and completely lost. We are totally unable to rescue ourselves, to fix what's wrong with us. There's a but, right? That's the bad news, but there's good news. The good news is that while you are completely lost, you have a shepherd. You have a shepherd that won't stop until he finds you. You have a shepherd who leaves the 99 to come find you, not quitting until he does. You are his treasure. Jesus is the shepherd we all need. Because he will not only do anything to save us, but the Bible shows us he's done everything to save us. That is the only message, the only savior, the only rescuer that can truly transform you. I can truly deal with what's wrong with us. I can actually find you in the way you need to be found and rescued. And when he does, it changes everything. It changes everything. The joy of being found 
The joy of being saved produces a perpetual joy and gives you an immovable identity that goes down to your very core. Did you notice the people who are on the first two verses that lead up to these parables and what they are doing? In one group, you have the tax collectors and you have the sinners. The worst of the worst. That's a shorthand for saying these are the worst of the worst. These are the outcasts of society. These are the people who aren't just sinners. They sin professionally. That's how they make their living, through sinning. Right? That's who they are. That's what they, and what are they doing? What are these sinners, these outcasts, these worst of the worst doing? They are joyfully drawing near to Jesus. But there's another group. There's another group called the Pharisees and the scribes. It's a shorthand for describing the religious and the morally right, the people who take God and his words seriously. Right? Take him seriously. And what are they doing? They stand back away from Jesus and they grumble. And they judge these other sinners and these other people and they judge Jesus for accepting them. The Pharisees and the scribes are the one whom Jesus is directing these parables to because they depend on their own performance and morality to think they can be right with God and with others. They completely miss the joy of being found, of being saved, because they don't think they're sheep. And because they don't think they're sheep, they miss getting found by the shepherd. And do you see the result? Do you see what happens and what it produces? Do you see what happens when you live out of a moral performance narrative in any way at all? In any way at all. A narrative that requires you to depend on your own ability, on your own record, on your witness to your goodness. When you live thinking your identity and standing with God comes from your ability and your performance in any way, it results in you standing back, grumbling, and judging others because you have to. If that's your identity, you have to stand back and judge others in order to feel kind of okay. Because if you are depending on your own performance and morality to be right with God, you have to compare and judge. Why? Because our sense of being okay depends on it. In order for you to feel and think you're okay, you have to feel and think that you're superior to others in your life. If your identity is based on being a hard worker, guess what you'll be really good at? Identifying those you perceive to be lazy and not hard workers. Because your identity requires it. If you sit back and grumble and judge because you have to do so, you have to feel superior. And laziness is a sin. It's wrong. But if your identity is being a hard worker, that's all you're looking for. That's all you're going to see. If your identity is being religious, moral, good person, your church attendance, check. Bible study, check. Right? Knowledge of the Bible, check. If you're depending on that, you will feel a secret sense of joy when others fall in big public ways for their moral failures. Why? Because your identity requires you to stand back and judge, to feel superior. But here's the kicker with any identity in that realm 
is it never really produces what you're after. You never feel okay. You never stop judging. You never stop needing to find the lazy, the public display of sin that somebody has because that your identity requires more but it will always fall short of what you're after therefore you will always have to look to others to feel superior you will always feel the need to find someone that you are doing better than and if you don't you'll find despair to be your friend you will always stand back to judge and grumble and if you can't find anyone, you've got to turn that judgment onto yourself, right? This need and stance never stops. Therefore, we will never know or experience the rest and joy and peace that comes from having a shepherd, that comes from being found. Why does Jesus tell these joyless, judgmental, grumbling, moral people these parables? Why are they depending on their performance rather than drawing near to Jesus like the others? Answer, for the same reason that you and I can be joyless. For the same reason that you and I can be so judgmental towards people. Because we have this tendency to try to depend on our performance as well. Because we get the answer wrong to the question, how does God view you this morning? When we try to answer that question by looking inward at all, we've already missed the mark. Any balk or any hesitation in our answer shows that we get it wrong. When we look inward or stumble with our answers because we doubt who God is and we doubt what he's like, we become suspicious of his heart towards us. I believe Early on in my Christian life, you forgave me for these things. I believe some of these sins are forgivable. But really, that one, this amount, the years I've struggled with this, I mean, I should be better than this by now, right? And so we start to doubt who God is and what he's like towards us. We become suspicious that his heart has changed towards us. We think, okay, this is why I'm going through this suffering now, right? Wondering often if God is joyless, judgmental, and distant towards us. But Jesus gives us these parables to change our thinking, to change the way that we relate to him, to change where our confidence is found about God's heart for us, which starts to change our heart as well. The grace narrative of the gospel leaves no room for shame, no room for condemnation, no room for punishment. In other words, it leaves no room for fear. Because as John tells us, perfect love does what? It casts out fear. We don't have to be afraid of being found out because we've been found. Right? Therefore, it leaves the door, the door of joy and peace wide open to come rushing into our hearts. How? How is this possible? How is there no condemnation and no punishment? Because when you look in your heart, when I look in my heart, I've blown it. I've blown it in ways that I won't tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you some, of the, some stuff. I'll try to be honest but I've blown it. 
So how is this true? Doesn't God hate sin? Doesn't he judge and punish sinners? Isn't that why we're here? How are verses 7 and 10 true? How is God so joyful over a sinner who repents? It's because we have a shepherd who's called the good shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd, but he saves us by becoming a sheep. Jesus, our good shepherd, saves us by becoming like us, by becoming the sheep. He became like us, but here's the thing. He never strayed. He never strayed from his father. He never left the care, the trust, the dependence on his father. But on the cross, what happens? The father does not rescue this sheep, doesn't rescue Jesus on the cross, but he leaves them there. He was not lost, but he was left on the cross. And while he, the shepherd, suffered as a sheep, enduring the punishment, guilt, and condemnation that is due to us, what he is doing is bearing our sins for straying. For he's taking the place for people's hearts who quickly stray, who quickly leave the God we love, who quickly leave his care, his love, and uh, protection for us. But because he did that, what's true of us is that there's no more guilt for you. He took that on too. There's no more shame for you. He took that on as well. There's no more condemnation. There's no more punishment. This is the grace narrative of the gospel that is true for everyone who's been found, for everyone who's in Jesus. If you are not in Jesus or are unsure about your stand before God, this is the offer. This is the invitation for you. Come talk to me, Charlie or Andy. Come talk to one of us about your standing before God because maybe he's finding you this morning. This message of the gospel of grace is the message that reveals God's heart towards us. The message of the parables is that you were lost, helplessly lost, but you're not lost anymore. You've been found. So stop living out of and depending on your own performance because you did nothing to be found. But learn from these tax collectors, from these professional sinners, to joyfully draw near to Jesus again. Joyfully draw near in repentance. If you think joy and repentance don't go together, then you don't understand what repentance is. It's where we come to experience him rejoicing over us being found and coming back. Because when you turn back, when you repent, what you will experience, what you're meant to experience, is the heart and the joy of God over you. You will start to know that God looks down at you and his heart is filled with nothing but joy or rejoicing. Don't you see he loves you so much? That he's given you everything in his son. 
let that sink in this morning that God throws parties in heaven over finding you, over you returning to him, over you repenting of your sins. There's a party in heaven over that. Let your mind try to understand what that means of his heart towards you this morning. That you were completely lost, but now you are infinitely loved. This message leaves no room for you feeling superior either, does it? Because everybody's a sheep. <laughs> Do you notice that? There's 99 who may not think they need repentance, but they're still sheep. Right? Everyone's a sheep. And you do nothing to be found. You aid nothing in being found by the good shepherd. So there's no room to feel superior. You did nothing to earn your salvation. And when this message sinks in, joy fills your heart in such a way that now you actually start to reflect the good shepherd to other sheep. You start to reflect the reality of this good shepherd to other sheep that you can seek to and rejoice over the loss when they are found too, rather than judge and condemn them like the Pharisees and the scribes. When sinners like you and me repent, when we experience and see others repenting and see and are exposed to their sin, rather than being shocked or uncomfortable by their sin, because maybe it's different than yours, you start to rejoice and join in the party that's being thrown. Because you know and you've experienced the joy of God in your heart. The exhortation this morning is to go out knowing that God rejoices over you now. This is not a future promise, but it will happen in the future too. It's happening now. It's happening now. And listen to me. No sin, either kind of sin or amount of sin, can lessen God's joy over you right now. No sin you've had in the past, in the present, or the ones you even haven't committed yet can lessen his joy over you or take away his love. And so now, knowing that, how do you think God feels about you? This morning you've been found you have a shepherd and he's rejoicing over you amen yeah. and so now we in some ways move to this table and the continuation of the message this table is a testament to his joy over us to his joy so much so that he loves you to the extent that he would send the good shepherd to give up his body, to shed his blood, and to take your place. 